You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would send your spirit to do what your spirit can only do through the word, which is to show us our need for Jesus and to give him to us. Amen. You may be seated. If you're coming today hoping for healing on the inside or healing on the outside, you've come to the right place. I was super pumped to find that Numbers 21 fell in my lap for today. When I saw this in the lectionary readings for the fourth Sunday in Advent, I literally started clapping my hands like a third grade girl. The bronze serpent, the bronze serpent, so excited. I know it sounds weird, bronze serpent, doesn't sound too uplifting. Aren't snakes supposed to be a a symbol of evil in the Bible? I don't know, like, everywhere. And what about the book of Numbers? Who reads that, you know? They really should have uh, come up with a better title for a book if they expected us to read it. We often kind of skip through the book of Numbers if we're reading through the Bible because the intro sort of goes over like a lead balloon, and we start reading a bunch of genealogies and get really discouraged. You know, obviously Moses skipped the school day, uh, school the day his creative writing class was teaching on composing great introductions, right? But the crazy thing about this particular episode here in Numbers is that hundreds of years later after that happened, a man named Jesus would come along and reference this story in a watershed moment of scripture. And I mean watershed. I mean like John 3.16 watershed. So pay attention, because this story is kind of incredible. Today, God will tell us two things from this stunning passage in Numbers. First, God will make a connection about how all true healing comes from the cross. And second, God will press on us the necessity of beholding Jesus for a truly transforming encounter with him. So that's where we're headed, but first, let's talk about the story The book of Numbers picks up the story of the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt as they're being liberated by God and headed into the promised land. They're out of Egypt, but they're not in the promised land. And as those of us uh, know who have read the exodus story, Israel is found yet again in verse 5 against Moses grumbling, but they're really grumbling against God. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? What's happening here, ultimately, is that Israel's not trusting that God's promise is true. They think they're going to die, not live. They're bitterly doubting God's word. So God responds with what seems like something mean, but really is like a lot of forms of providential suffering, a means of grace and a means of leading his people back to him. The text says, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, And they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And the people came back to Moses brokenhearted and soft-hearted, ready to confess their sin and need, ready to come back to the source of life. And what does God do with the weary and the brokenhearted? The same thing he always does. God has always been gentle and lowly. God has always been gracious to sinners who know they're sinners. God's heart is magnetically drawn in mercy and compassion to the broken one who says, God, I need you. And so he rushes into mercy 
and commands Moses to make a kind of mini-sacrament, something visible to the eye, but really a sign of a deeper, invisible reality of healing grace through the redemptive and merciful work of God, a bronze serpent. And the powerful moment seizes us when we hear this compelling final line of our passage in verse 9. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, they would look at the bronze serpent and live. Look and live. What a story. But here's where it gets interesting. Because hundreds of years later in John 3, we find Jesus having a clandestine meeting with one of the skeptical but open religious high-ups. It has to be clandestine because the religious leaders are out to get Jesus, and if this religious leader was outed, his fellow Pharisees would have canceled him faster than Dr. Seuss. Jesus meets under cover of night with one of these Jewish bishops of Israel, Nicodemus, a man of great learning and no doubt an Old Testament scholar. No doubt a man who knows the book of Numbers backwards and forwards, maybe even the genealogies. And Jesus offers an interpretation of Numbers 21 like Nicodemus has ever heard before. He says, and this is kind of a bombshell and a mic drop, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's John 3, 14 to 15. That's the verses right before John 3, 16. Did you know that? The verses right before God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son are these verses where Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. And just like that, Jesus takes the whole Bible and drills a long line straight through it, making a vital connection between the ancient bronze serpent and himself. Jesus says, something's going to happen to me that will parallel and match and map onto that whole snake story back then. Moses raises a snake on a pole, high and lifted up, so that the people can look and live. And Jesus will be raised on a pole, high and lifted up, so that people can look and live. Jesus is talking about the cross, of course, that shocking moment of the exaltation and glorification of God, ironically high and lifted up, exalted, glorified, worship language, but exalted and glorified in a most horrific manner, bleeding, dying, weak, emaciated, super heavy. And what does this connection, the snake of Moses and the cross of Christ teach us. First, and this is the less apparent one, but I feel compelled to preach it. All true healing for you comes from the power of the cross. And I mean all true healing, every kind of healing. Any healing that you receive in this life and the next ultimately comes from one source, the cross of Christ. Now, I know that that's a really bold statement, especially in our scientific age, especially in an age when even as Christians, our modernist tendencies kick in, and we're more ready to say that the coronavirus is slowly being put to death by vaccines and labs and scientists and smart people, not by some fanciful, mystical idea of a man on a cross. But hear me out. Let me make a case 
I actually think that doctors and nurses and medical workers and pharmaceutical scientists will find their vocations validated and vindicated here and even charged with a fresh, new, and deeper life. You see, what happened on the cross was far more than spiritual salvation. What happened on the cross was totalizing and cosmic. It's why Jesus is connecting his crucifixion with this Old Testament instance of the healing, the physical healing of the people of God. And here we have other passages of scripture to assist us with this, particularly as it relates to the cross. Like the prophecy of Jesus' suffering in Isaiah 53 and the way the New Testament quotes it. This is interesting. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We read it a lot on Good Friday. But a remarkable thing occurs in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus went around healing the sick, and then he says, Matthew says, and this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew reads Isaiah's prophecy of Christ's cross as Jesus bearing our sickness there. You see, the gospel, the good news of the cross is this. Jesus has secured your forgiveness of sins. But that forgiveness, that cross, that gospel has unlocked a chest full of life-giving benefits. And one of those benefits is physical healing. From the cross flows the power of all physical healing. And we as Christians need to have kind of the short game and the long game in perspective when we hear this. The short game is that we should expect to see God's work to include healing in people's lives and bodies here and now. After all, the kingdom of God is at hand and we're told by God in places like James 5 to pray for healing for people. But the long game is that Christians are promised, promised full and total healing On the other side of death. Either way, healing will come. And in every way, that healing has one source, the cross of Christ. I can think of two of many practical implications of this. First, if you're in medicine, if you're a doctor or a nurse, a surgeon, a a pharmacist or a nurse practitioner, or even if you're in the psychological or mental health fields, child development or early intervention, when you see people healed, And changed by the work of your hands and heart, make no mistake, you are an agent of the cross. God has taken the power of the cross and chosen you to be the vehicle through which he has dispensed Christ's healing. This isn't cheesy baptizing of secular science. This is putting science in its proper place under the authority and power of God who ordered this universe and who uses agents of healing, like you, to be his ministers. And this means that those of you in these fields have just as holy a calling as I do. You're just as much a minister as I am. You've been given the gift of healing, which is from the Holy Spirit. And as you watch your patients or your clients come back to health, give glory to the one who's high and lifted up, that he has done the work of healing and that he has indeed established the work of your hands. The second implication is for those of us who have been praying for healing for a long time. 
for ourselves and for others. And the implication is to never lose hope. The cross tells us that healing is not a possibility, it's a promise. Healing's not a possibility, it's a promise. Whether in this life or the next, the one who is found hidden in that cross by grace through faith will be healed. Some of us will have that early joy of knowing that healing now. Others of us will have that perhaps greater joy of having suffered long and then fully and finally tasting the incredible freedom on the other side of that death. Right before COVID hit, one of our boys had a horrible fall, which resulted in several broken bones, including multiple vertebrae in his back. Things took a turn for the worse, and he was fitted for a brace, a kind of torture device that some of you have actually lived through, because I know your stories, that he was going to have to wear for 23 hours a day for the next several years in middle school. Middle school. And while waiting for the brace to be made, Delayed, actually, because of COVID. God moved us to share this story with others, our small group, some of you in this church, and some Christians that we knew in our families. And we began to fervently pray. And while doing that, while waiting, while doing other therapeutic measures at home, we discovered six weeks later that the problem was gone. His spine was straight as an arrow. And he was miraculously healed. And the doctor said after 27 years of treating patients, he's still surprised every day at miracles like this. You see, some of us will have the early joy of being able to see the power of the cross apply its healing in our lives now. Others of us will have suffered long and find the greater joy of fully and finally tasting the eternal healing on the other side of death. But all of us will be healed. The deaf will hear, the blind will see, and the lame will walk, and the mentally ill will be tormented no more. Which means that despair isn't a part of the equation. And though we may be weary from prayers for healing now, which seem to be answered no, Because of this good news, we recognize that no is never a no, but simply a not yet. And so we continue to pray, and we continue to grieve, though not without hope. We continue to lament, but our gaze is always upward at the Son of Man, who is high and lifted up. Healing will come, says the cross. Keep praying, and don't lose hope. So we've seen from this passage that all true healing comes from the power of the cross. Now let's turn to the other word. All real life for you comes from beholding Christ crucified. You know, there's a stark difference between seeing and beholding. The first leaves you unmoved. The second changes your life. It's the difference between, on the one hand, a geologist who can look at a rock formation in Arizona and explain the molecular structure of sandstone and mudstone and other sedimentary rock. And on the other hand, a hiker who is standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and saying, wow. You know, interestingly, they're looking at the same thing, but the geologist is seeing and the hiker is beholding. 
One is contemplating and analyzing and observing and dissecting and rather in control of the situation. The other is overwhelmed, worshiping and relinquishing control simply because they're startled into wonder about it all. You see, God has designed you and me to be kind of like boiling pots. Seeing something is, is merely containing information inside of us like a pot contains water, holding it in. Beholding is when the energy of that information so ignites with the heat of glory that it can no longer be contained and it spills over. Beholding is when knowledge about God and about Jesus spills over from head to heart. Beholding is the transition point when a good thought can no longer remain just a good thought, but has to overflow out of your body all that excess glory. When tears stream down your face, or when goosebumps are kind of pushing out of the surface of your skin, uncontainable and overwhelming, too much to handle. Have you beheld Jesus lately? Have you yet beheld Jesus? Have you held, beheld Jesus recently? I was thinking back to my wedding day. You know, a lot of us like to do this. When the bride hits the aisle and we're all supposed to be looking back at her There's not a small amount of folks, and I know this because I've officiated many weddings, there's not a small amount of folks that are sneaking a glance back at the groom. Why? Because we all want to see a grown man cry. I remember that moment for me. I remember when Abby hit the aisle with her dad. Why in that moment did I start crying? Why did I lose control on that dignified and holy day? Because in that moment, I was shifted from seeing to beholding. And what was involved in that beholding? What made the difference? When you behold in that moment, you're simultaneously aware of everything that you're physically seeing, but it's overwhelmingly combined with all its deep and symbolic and spiritual significance. The physical and the metaphysical converge in a tidal wave that overwhelms every part of you, mind, body, and soul. And when I saw Abby at the back of that aisle, I not only saw the most beautiful and most perfect woman I've ever seen, I saw my future. I saw my kids. I saw the home that we would build together. I saw the richness and the hardship and the suffering and the joy and the intimacy and the failure and the triumph all coming together and converging in that single moment. And that's why I I cried. Because when I saw my wife... Suddenly I was caught up in beholding everything that it meant to be joined with her in the most deep and rich and intimate of human fellowships. And it was too much for me to handle. My body needed to push out something because I was so full. And so I cried. And those tears pushed out of me, the exhale of joy and euphoria that my body couldn't contain any longer. It spilled out of me. That's what beholding is. So if you've only seen Jesus, you're missing out. Because when you behold him on the cross, what you're seeing is much more than a public execution of a wrongly accused criminal. You're seeing the convergence of him and you. You're seeing your spiritual wedding day of your union with God. You're seeing the whole story of your life wrapped up and converging there. 
You're seeing every last sin of yours being destroyed and forgotten in his death. Your whole life of rebellion against God, slaughtered and obliterated, slaughtered and obliterated at the cross until it's no more. You're watching the entire timeline of your failures get bundled up in a single moment and placed on that man on that cross and you're seeing him heroically put it to death as he moans and groans under the weight of the condemnation of the universe and the condemnation of you and you watch him bury your addiction and you watch him bury your sarcastic and venomous words and you watch him take your eyes that can't turn away from those pornographic images and place them in his own head. So he becomes a witness to those spirit-grieving and image-of-God-destroying scenes, and he takes those eyes with him to the grave. And you see your biography of shame, the shameful things you've done and thought, and the shameful things done to you and the scars that you live with, and you see that biography lifted up for public execution, and you watch him take from you that identity that you've given way too much and too high an esteem to, the one that you pride yourself in and defend, and he takes that broken identity of yours and places it on himself so that he can take it with him to its and his ultimate end, also that you might taste and know the freedom, the promised land, on the other side of all that empty searching and thirsty wandering. And you see all that exchanged for a better story, an eternal story, rewritten in the life and death and resurrection and ascension and return of God the Son. And now it makes sense why Moses fashioned a snake and why snakes were always literally and figuratively signs of evil. Jesus takes the identity of the serpent in all of us and he takes it out of us and assumes it on himself and becomes the serpent on the cross for your sake. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold your future judgment day, the cross of Christ, where the innocent is condemned and the guilty go free where the virtuous one is despised and the despicable ones are cleansed and raised up. Is this too good to be true? No, it's too good and it's too true. Unbelievable, I know. But as you're starting to realize, to behold something to the point where it overwhelms you is to truly encounter the unbelievable. It's unbelievable because you can't contain it in your faculties. You have to let the excess leak out in tears, in sighs, in groans, in relief, in ecstasy. And so go ahead and believe the unbelievable. What Jesus said is true and trustworthy. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Behold Jesus anew today and get ready because you're going to live forever and it's going to be unbelievable. You have no idea what's waiting for you. So Jesus, we praise you. Jesus, we exalt you. Jesus, we lift you up. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And all God's people said, 
Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.